Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboone.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FITCHESH. You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on The Pod Station. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Johnson & Boone Podcast. My name's Mark, I am the host. Joining me again this week is the wonderful, the irrepressible Rob Boone of Johnson & Boone fame. How are we doing, Rob? Mark, oh, good to see you. How are you? I'm not too bad at all, I can't complain. Um, still stuck in my house during lockdown 3.0 or 6.0, I've, I've lost track I think now. Yeah, I think we've all lost count now. Uh, so, uh, Rob, uh, before we get stuck into the topic of today, do you want to just quickly explain why we do these podcasts? So if people are listening for the first time, they might understand a bit more before I run through where they can catch it all. Yeah, so what we do each week um, is we discuss a different area of law or we drill down on a specific piece of legislation that might have changed. We might speak about something topical. And the idea is just to give people some information, um, a flavour of the overall subject. And then if they need any help, um, then they can contact us. If not, uh, it might be one of those subjects that they can try themselves. Uh, so if that is something that might be of use to you, and certainly if you enjoyed this particular episode, then... If you want to catch some of the previous ones, there are 34 other episodes to check out at this point in time. If you go to johnsonandboon.co.uk, you will find a podcast tab where you will find all of the previous shows. And in each of those episodes, you will also find links to the major podcast platforms where you can also get them. So if you go to, I don't know, say Apple or Google Podcasts, you will find the show if you type in Johnson & Boone. You can subscribe, and then when the latest episode drops, it will automatically download onto the device that you use. It's as simple as that. You can also download the Johnson & Boone mobile app, which... Again, has a podcast tab on there, which allows you to listen to the whole show. Uh, why would you want to do that? Well, uh, there's a whole host of other features on that app, isn't there, Rob? Yeah, there certainly is. So you can access all of our articles. Um, you can have a look at the different services that we do. If you're one of our Legal Guard members, then you can log into the Legal Guard membership area. Um, if you want to book an appointment with any of the team, then there's an appointment tab where you can actually see our diaries live uh, and drop a, an appointment in. And it also tells you which member of the team would be best for you for any given section. So it's it's a really useful thing. Uh, and as you say, it's free in terms of downloading So there you go. Why would you not? Indeed. Uh, right. So, Rob, what's the topic that we're going to be covering today? 
So today we're going to talk about and review the very longly worded the electrical safety standards in private rented sector regulations 2020, which um, all sounds very complicated, but it basically governs the obligations on landlords and that's private landlords in relation to electrical safety. So these were brought in last year in April and so far they've applied to uh, all tenancies uh, that were new as of the 1st of July 2020. Now that all changes in April of this year and as that date's fast approaching uh, we thought it'd be a good time to uh, bring these regulations to everyone's attention who isn't maybe aware of them so far. I should actually pick you up on a uh, error there, Rob. When you were reading the snappy title, you missed out England in brackets, which was an extra word that goes in there. Obviously, the people who wrote this legislation weren't necessarily in for these snappy abbreviations, were they? No, no. I, th- I thought I'd spare you for the brackets <laughs> as, I, as I went through that. But, but you're absolutely right. For those who, who want the full title, there is a, an England in brackets in there as well. <laughs> so what was the law before this snappy little bit of legislation came into play? So before April 2020, the mandatory electrical inspections, uh, which focus in in this legislation, were only legally required in houses of multiple occupation. So for other tenancies, it was recommended that an electrical uh, installation condition report be carried out every five years. But that was more of a recommendation than an actual legal requirement. So whilst many landlords followed that, um, many didn't. And the new regulations aim to bring all that in line and make sure that all tenancies are covered um, and all tenants are kept safe. Is there a particular reason why they felt the need to bring in this regulation? Over the last few years, anybody who's familiar with the um, the private rented sector and, and the obligations on landlords will be aware that everything has been being brought into line. So there's a huge amount of focus, the Tenant Fees Act, came in in terms of regulating lots of stuff Um, there's been recent cases in terms of what is and isn't okay in relation to the service of gas safety certificates Um, there's been a lot of focus on tenancy deposit matters and it's a really highly regulated area one of the focuses of everything that has changed has been trying to make the the rental sector as a whole better for tenants and this is just another one of those things that Whilst gas was previously, you know, highly regulated, electric wasn't. Um, but obviously, it's very dangerous if properties have have poor electrics. So the idea really was just to make this more mandatory. Um, and whilst it's onerous on landlords because it relates to safety, uh, it's it's seen as as needed. So when did these regulations come into force for the first time? So the regulations themselves, they came in in April, uh, but they only applied to all new tenancies, and that is new tenancies granted after the 1st of July 2020. Um, All existing tenancies aren't affected by this until April of this year. Uh, And as I said at the start, that's one of the reasons why we're we're doing this today, uh, because there's lots of people that still aren't aware of, of what's required. So if there's a landlord listening to this now, or in fact a tenant who is listening to this now, and they're thinking, crikey, what's this going to entail? What is it that private landlords are needed to do 
to comply with these new regulations? So all private landlords are required to do numerous things. Um, so that is ensure that the electrical safety standards are met during a period when um, the residential premises are occupied by a tenant. And that's, we'll talk later on about what is and isn't excluded, but generally that's under the, the terms of an AST. Um, they have to ensure electrical installations in the residential premises are inspected and tested at regular intervals. And that's gotta be done by a qualified person. And qualified person is defined in the act as, as you'd expect somebody with the relevant expertise to do so. Um, in terms of um, other obligations, they have to ensure that the first inspection and testing is carried out before the new tenancy commences. Um, and that is um, for all tenancies after the 1st of July 2020 at the moment. Um, they also have to ensure that the, the first inspection um, was carried out before the tenants obviously moved in. And if there are any issues before they move in, then they need to be rectified. Once the inspection and the testing has, has taken place, um, they'll get a report from a qualified person. Um, and as, as I said before, that is within the definition of the Act. Um, that, that, that person will identify and will give a report as to any problems. They'll also identify when the next report needs to be done. So then with that report, the landlord has to give a tenant um, a copy of it within 28 days of the inspection. They also have to provide a copy to the local authority and they also have to retain a copy because next time the report gets done, the next relevant person who performs the next assessment will need to see one. Um, so it is fairly onerous, but it is very similar to um, the processes that would be followed for things like gas safety, where they have to get a report, has to be from a proper person and then they have to give a copy to the tenants. The difference here obviously is the um, require, it, it seems like it will be a more detailed report um, and they have to retain a copy for the next person. So to put it in its simplest form for anyone who's struggling to keep up with those dates, the rough rule of thumb is by the 1st of April, if you have a tenant in a property, there needs to be an inspection. Um, some of them, which might have happened after July 2020, should have been done before people moved in. But it, simplifying it slightly, if you haven't got one, you need to get one. Absolutely. The difficulty is going to be that, obviously, at the moment, um, we speak during the, the term of another lockdown, as, as we, we mentioned at the start. Um, these reports require somebody to actually attend the property um, and at this moment in time that might either be very very difficult or certainly slow so landlords need to if they need one of these reports um, get it booked in nice and early because it may not just be a case of getting the report it might be the steps that they need to take afterwards in terms of rectifying any issues if someone can get if a landlord can get a, an electrician to go to the property and they do an inspection all as well that's fine the report comes through and they can disclose it what happens if the report actually uh, uncovers some unsafe electrics so if the report indicates that the property is not electrically safe the landlord uh, has to ensure that the recommended work that's detailed within the report is carried out and again that has to be carried out by a, a qualified person they can't do it themselves um, but they can't get a mate to do it who's you know unqualified the work has to be carried out within 28 days 
or within a period specified in the report if that's sooner and obviously that's going to depend upon the the significance of the work and, and how how dangerous it actually is the landlord then has to obtain written confirmation from the qualified person who completes the work that the work has been uh, done and it meets the the safety standards um that it didn't previously and then they, again they'll give a copy of that to the tenant and to the local authorities a copy with a co- along with a copy of the original report and what happens if they don't comply with that this is the scary part um if the local authority believe that a landlord is in breach of their duties under the act they'll serve them a remedial notice uh, and they have to then take immediate action um if they think and it's beyond reasonable doubt so it's it's in line with the with the criminal threshold but if they believe in 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 line with that threshold that a landlord has breached their duties they can also fine them up to thirty thousand pounds okay so it's not a it's not a cheap thing to overlook no it's very serious i mean electric is obviously one of those things that can't be toyed with um and the whole point of these and, and the whole point of the high fine is to make sure that people pay attention um and that these regs are actually followed obviously housing authorities will take action if they know that there is a problem but how do they know that there is a problem if they don't know that there is a problem it's the uh, it's what was it the it was it the fbi guy um who said it's the knowing knows and knows and who knows and whatever it was if a landlord isn't a registered landlord or that they don't know that there's a tenant in a property one assumes that there's going to be no they're not going to be bothering with these sorts of inspections so how will they know to then take the action it's a good question it's it's similar in many of these areas where you know if the local authority don't know something's going on or they don't know a property is is let then it it can slip through the net there is really good mechanisms in place now though i mean in in lots of places around england landlords have to be registered um, there'll be lots of tenants who are claiming some sort of housing benefits. So obviously, they'll be on the radar. Um, but if a tenant knows that the electrics are substandard, if they're having problems, this legislation and, and these regulations will be in the media as it rolls out. Um, and one of the first things they'll do is, is they'll contact the local authority um, in order to take action for them in, in, in terms of, of remediating it. Yeah, sorry to go back. It was there are known knowns and there are things we know that we know, uh, and so on and so forth. I think the long and short of it is that hopefully there's there's going to be many other things that that capture them, whether it be through secondary fail safes. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's very unlikely that long term landlords would be able to avoid this because there have been quite a few additional regulations throughout the course of the last few years to try and tighten this sector isn't it to to avoid rogue landlords from being able to operate it has i mean there's many letting agents that we speak to because we we act for lots of letting agents the same as we act for many tenants on on different types of matters and letting agents over the last four or five years have really struggled in terms of keeping up with how quickly legislation has changed um, I think we've done a couple of shows in the last 12 months in which we've spoke about lots of different changes, um, right down to the simple thing of, of how long is needed for things like Section 21 notices. I think that's changed about three times in the last year. So it's a very movable um, area of law um, and it is all going in one direction. And that is to make sure that the tenant lives in a, in a safe property 
they're dealt with fairly um, and it's to avoid the whole um, sort of rogue landlord thing if you like. You mentioned right at the outset that there were exclusions to this legislation so how is it that a tenancy might find itself not um, falling under these new regulations? Yeah so most tenancies are covered by these regulations and that includes um, HMOs so houses of multiple occupancy there are a few types of tenancies though that are excluded and you'll find that these are also the same types of tenancies that are excluded from things such as the the, uh, the deposit protection legislation um, if there's a tenancy where um, the landlord um, actually lives with the um, with the tenant uh, or if they're a, a member of their own family say in a house or a lodger that's excluded um, if the tenancy is with a landlord who is a provider of social housing that's excluded um, if there's um, a property which is a long lease um, so something which would be seven years or more that's excluded student accommodation is excluded and then all the usual things that you would debate whether they're actually tenancies are excluded. So you're talking about hostels, refuges, care homes, hospices, hospitals, um, any other type of healthcare building of that type that you might stay in for a while. All of them are excluded. Um, but with most of them, there is other types of legislation that deal with, um, with health and safety anyway. Um, so these are targeted specifically at the private rented sector and specifically at your everyday landlord who who rents you know a couple of properties to to personal individuals a, a couple of questions there with the student accommodation that's quite an interesting one to be in the exclusion is there any particular reason because quite often students do rent from private landlords and i suppose sometimes when you're in these big student accommodation blocks the properties that they're renting are actually from private leaseholders so would that fall in or are we talking about accommodation that's owned by a university sort of the halls of residence yeah it'll be interesting to see how it plays out i think it more relates to halls of residence so if you have an ast an assured short-hold tenancy agreement then you fall under the boundaries of this so just because you happen to be a student I don't think that would give the landlord a way out of saying that they don't have to comply with this it comes down to what is your tenancy more than what is your purpose so i think it more relates to things like halls of residence um, within university campuses and, and that type of thing and of course that's because they're regulated themselves anyway in lots of different ways i suppose that makes sense because i guess i was going to say i can't really remember what i signed when i moved into halls of residence a hundred million years ago i'm assuming it must have been an AST and a short short hold tenancy agreement, but I, I can't remember. So it, it'd be if if there are other regulations, perhaps which capture them in those situations, it explains it, doesn't it? Yeah, and you will find. I, I, I mean, this is something. It's new legislation, and you know we haven't quite seen how it plays out yet. The idea is, as I say, to bring in line the majority of the tenancies and the majority of the tenancies in England and Wales are assured short hold tenancy agreements uh, or their properties that relate to HMOs um, and they are really where the risk is seen so it's anticipated that if you're staying in a university campus the university themselves will make sure that the building is is adequate now whether on the ground that's actually always the case 
um, you know, is is a matter of opinion. But it's aimed at making sure that safety is a feature. Um, the gas safety regulations do that from a gas point of view, and this is intended to a certain extent to mirror that and make sure that the electrical side has to be looked after as well. There's a couple of other interesting ones. HMOs, I mean, we've, we've explained their houses of multiple occupancy, but perhaps that that explanation isn't something that people understand is there a sort of a more obvious way of describing what a hmo actually is so people might understand if they are living in one yeah if we give an example rather than examine the law on it so uh, if you if you think sometimes you get these big old victorian houses that once were a five six seven eight bedroom you know semi-mansion if you like and over time, it just doesn't make sense for people to um, occupy them as a family. So what you'll have is, is you'll have multiple adults that wouldn't necessarily live together, all living together in under one roof. And they might have sections that are excluded. They might have sections that they share, but they're in multiple occupancy of the property. So it's multiple families living in a single property. Um, different to flats, of course, you know, if it's divided off into flats, then that's entirely different again. Um, but most people, they're very common down in, in, in London and, and in the south in that area because there's lots of big properties, but rents are very expensive. And the way in which they deal with that is is to divide them up and, and, and have multiple occupancy people in there. The difficulty with that is for a long time, those properties were fairly sketchy in the way they'd been set out. They weren't maybe necessarily right in relation to fire regulations and fire escapes. And people were in, in these properties that were expensive to live in, they were dividing it more and more and more. So you'd find that there was an unsafe number of people. There's lots of regulations now in place. It's a hugely regulated area in terms of what those properties have to meet um, in order to be legal. And, and this is just something that supplements that. So this is something that covers the electrical side. If a tenant and the landlord live in the same property, uh, I assume the exclusion is on the basis that a landlord won't want to live in a dangerous property with electrical faults. But of course, if they don't know or care or don't have the finances to do that, one assumes it can be left in the situation where the tenant will be exposed to the electrical risks that this sort of regulation is there to to remove it's a good point it, it it's an interesting one though because obviously when the landlord um lives in the property and it, it's almost like a lodger situation there are other pieces of legislation that apply to tenants um, and landlords that don't apply and a, a classic example is the requirement to protect the deposit um you or I probably wouldn't have one of these reports done in our house, but nevertheless, we would expect that our um, electrics would be safe and we'd do everything we can because we're living there to make sure that they were safe. So um, I think the idea is to not, it's an informal relationship or it's a more informal relationship when you have a lodger and you're sharing the accommodation and that lodger generally has much less by way of rights um, certainly in terms of the states that they're being evicted um, than what they'd have for an AST. And as a result, because they're sharing the property, it's, it's normally much cheaper or they already have some sort of relationship with the landlord. So I can see 
you know, some people may say that it sounds a bit strange, but it is something that's mirrored in other legislation that affects tenants. And and I think if if people are uncomfortable with that, um, then it's it's a case of stay away from that arrangement and and have a proper AST separately with your own flat or your own house, whatever it might be. And you mentioned, of course, about the financial penalties for doing it. Might there be a, a liability on a criminal side of things if a, a tenant were to to suffer some, like an electric shock, as it were, and God forbid, end up dying? Is there the likes of corporate manslaughter? It's always possible. I think you know the majority of these matters are going to be dealt with by way of a fine, and that is. Um, not the tenant that brings that action. I think if somebody is injured as a result of being electrocuted or something along those lines, um, it's more likely that they will bring a civil action for damages off a result of that, similar to a, a personal injury claim. And there might be other things in there. So if the property wasn't fit um, for them to live in, um, then there's lots of claims that are brought under section 11 you know you may have heard the the phrase section 11 and that all relates to the fitness of the property and disrepair etc so i think a lot of people um will end up in this situation off the back of those matters that then housing and, and local authorities become aware of um really extreme cases then yeah you might find that there's a, a criminal prosecution but i think most of them would fall into the first two categories so if you are a landlord or i suppose it's probably more relevant for landlords this sort of a change and you need to get some advice on what you need to be doing and perhaps double checking that they've crossed the t's and dotted the i's for some of the other regulations which we've uh, perhaps mentioned as an aside during the course of this episode how can they get in touch with the johnson and boone team so the best thing to do is to to book a, a consultation with one of our landlord and tenant team uh, and that includes myself and, and a couple of the other guys they can either message us via the website so they can go on johnsonandburn.co.uk and there's a message tab uh, as we said before they can download our app and book an appointment straight into one of our diaries they can call our office on 0151-637-2034 or they can look us up on any of the major social media platforms uh, they could always just drop us an email as well to info at johnsonandburn.co.uk so loads of ways of getting in touch guys uh, hopefully that's been of interest if it has do us a favor if you could go onto the podcast platform you use and just give us a quick review that'd be fantastic it just lets the show be seen by more people and hopefully we can help someone else as i hope we've we've helped you today um give us a follow on social media johnson boone as rob has said we're on facebook linkedin instagram and twitter you can also actually listen to this whole show on youtube now uh, so if you just go and give us a follow on that uh, as you say if you want to drop a message or you just want to throw a comment on there then then please feel free to do so uh, and we'll happily answer those questions in future episodes uh, as well uh, rob thank you very much for your uh, expertise today um i think people who this applies to will probably have found it extremely useful thanks mark we'll catch you next time guys thanks very much for listening bye now get social at johnson and boone on instagram facebook and twitter